This is Ari Posner, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name's Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 30 for Monday, August 8th, 2011. Well, today I am so excited to bring you an interview with writer-producer Ari Posner from Reba, Mental, Call Me Fits, and lots more. It's a very long interview, and so I'm going to get right through these announcements. Uh, first of all, an update on the TV Writer Podcast Summer Contest. Make sure you check it out. There are lots of great prizes still to be won. You can get the details at tvwriterpodcast.com. There's been a number of winners already. They're posted on the podcast site. And a reminder that you can find out the weekly challenges every Sunday night at the TV Writer Chat. And that's at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, 9.30 p.m. Eastern, every Sunday night. The TV Writer Chat is a talk about all kinds of topics related to TV writing. There's often special guests. Uh, lots of working writers join in. It's a lot of fun. You can find out details about that at tvwriterchat.com. And uh, right before the chat, usually about 9.20, 9.25, um, Eastern Time, I, I announce the winner for the previous week and give the challenge for the upcoming week. So make sure to check that out. Um, also, don't forget to go to the uh, TV Writer Twitter database on the tvwriterpodcast.com site. There are over 800 writers and their Twitter handles all for your perusal. Uh, you can follow the entire list. There's instructions on how to do that at the top. Or you can follow individual writers um, through that list. And one writer on that list that you would want to follow is me, at Gray Jones is my handle. You can find out about instant prizes. Uh, I usually pop them in on Twitter around Tuesday or Wednesday. And uh, if you're watching the Twitter feed, you can have a chance to win. There have been some great ones awarded already. I also wanted to make note of something. There's a new way that you can help yourself and also help the podcast at the same time as you will discover in the interview with Ari Posner. He mentions something that we've heard a few times before, probably, that actually shooting your own short film or shooting your own webisodes or shooting your own feature is a great way to get noticed and possibly could help you break in. Well, I don't know if you remember, but I'm actually an internationally award-winning short film producer, and I've also been working in television for at least 12 years now, and I uh, have a university degree, and I'm really hip on the tech stuff. And so what I've done is I've opened up a section of the TV Writer Podcast mini store to deal with DSLR cameras, lighting, sound, and books that'll help you understand how to best use them. I've been corresponding with another podcast interviewee, Eric Haywood, and he's shooting his entire feature film on DSLR. You might not even know that portions of Captain America that just hit the theaters were shot with a very inexpensive DSLR camera. It's a very, very exciting time to do your own filmmaking and amazingly, you could actually even sell your product. Back in, I think, January, there was a feature film that was entirely shot on DSLR, 
and it was sold for four million dollars to Paramount. So there are amazing possibilities. And if you go to the TV Writer Podcast site, there's a link to that takes you to the store. And once you're at the store, you will notice some new sections, DSLR cameras and accessories. Um, if you click on that, you'll see that I've also put comments on every single one of the items that'll help you understand what are the best for your needs. And feel free to send me an email, mail at tvwriterpodcast.com, if you have any questions about how to get started with filmmaking. I did film school, and I've done lots of shooting, and I can help you out if you want to pursue this angle. So, food for thought, and buying this gear through the website helps tremendously to support the podcast and anything that is not there that you would like to buy if you just click it from the tv writer podcast mini store there's a little powered by amazon.com link if you click that link and go to the full amazon.com site as long as it's in the same session every single thing that you purchase there can help support the podcast so i urge you to do that it's a great way to help you and also to help the podcast thanks so much uh, but now on to my interview with writer-producer Ari Posner. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with writer-producer Ari Posner. How are you doing, Ari? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. And I have to congratulate you because I heard that Call Me Fitz got, what, 16 Gemini nominations? Uh, yes. Who's counting? All of us. Uh, yeah, the the uh, the show was very well received for its first season. Very very cool. And uh, and I imagine just looking at the the nominations that uh, it's got a very good chance of winning a lot of those. So um, fingers crossed. I hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, I know that you've had a great career in television. Looking at your resume, um, you've done, done some really cool stuff. And, and so there's going to be a lot of, lot to talk about. We might as well get right to it. Um, where we always start is where you got started. And I know you went to Harvard, but even before that, um, when you grew up, did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Not really. I was uh, one of those uh, sensitive, uh, nervous poet kid in the corner types. And I wanted to be a doctor and assumed that that's what I was going to do and was very interested in science, really. But until college, kind of beat that out of me. <laughs> My first uh, foray into writing was to become a kind of journalist. I worked on the school paper in college, and I wanted to learn how to type. And at the time, you know, there were manual machines, and you just poked and learned. And I, I thought if you wanted to be a writer, the first step would be to know how to actually get the letters on the page properly. Mm-hmm. So I, I worked as a reporter, and I wrote a lot of humor pieces and kind of uh, an entertainment reviews for the Harvard Crimson, and I, I was a movie reviewer, and it gradually got me uh, more and more interested in seeing myself that way and trying it. It seemed too remote and crazy. I, I'm from a family of doctors in Montreal, and it didn't seem to be an option when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. No one I knew had ever been in the writing or uh, entertainment or even sort of media professions and it didn't didn't occur to me really until about halfway through college that it was a, a real job possibility. Mm -hmm. Well you did uh, graduate magna cum laude and you also uh, were chosen to do a humor speech. Tell me about that. Oh well in uh, senior year there's uh, at graduation we have a, a two-day or well, several day process and there's a something called the class day before commencement. It's, there are two, two separate events 
And on class day, the undergraduates all assemble and their families and everybody, and they, there are a couple speeches. They usually have a guest speaker. My year was Peter Uberoff, who had uh, been the commissioner of baseball, you may remember. At any rate, there's a Harvard speech, they call it, the Radcliffe speech. Those are one from the male population, female population. Then there's a uh, something called the Ivy Oration, which is the humor speech. And um, there was a competition, and people wrote up their speeches and delivered them to a small committee trying to get laughs out of five people in a in a boardroom, which wasn't that. Uh-huh. And uh, I was uh, lucky enough to prevail. And I ended up uh, giving my speech on graduation day. It was a lot of fun, actually. Very, very cool. So the recording, it's painful to watch. <laughs> you don't know how to work a room. And when it's outside and there are 10,000 people and, you know, the, the laugh comes back about a minute later. <laughs> oh, no. You you don't necessarily have to know how to uh, pace the thing. Yeah. I've learned a little bit since then. Yeah, oh, I imagine. So now you worked for as a as a reporter for a few years after that. Yeah, after college, I was uh, well. Even during college, I worked at the Montreal Gazette one summer. I I was uh, on the copy desk and writing music and movie reviews and so on. And then after college, I worked at the Miami Herald in uh, obviously Miami. With I'll tell you a, an aside, actually, because I feel like I'm part of television history. My the roommate that I had when we went down there that summer. We were both living in the house of the fishing editor for the Miami Herald, a guy named Jim Hardy, who's uh-huh. long, long since passed. And I mo- moved into one little room, and he, he had this old beat-up house uh, with, uh, you know, a giant carved marlin out of plastic uh, on the wall and that sort of thing, uh-huh. fishing bait and everything. It was just not exactly my my scene, nor was it the scene of uh, my roommate, Ryan Murphy. Ryan Murphy. Who was just a uh, junior in college at the time. Wow. Coming down for the summer. And he's obviously gone on. I worked with him on Popular, his first show, and we're still uh, friends. And he he was um, obviously the guy who does Glee, and, and he did Nick Tuck and so on. Wow. But anyway, I, I worked at the Miami Herald for a while, and, and then I uh, after that I went back to um, Boston, worked at the Boston Phoenix, which is kind of a Village Voice-style uh, weekly alternative paper. Mm-hmm. My claim to fame was a, a, a long article about the uh, Boston Bruins and Boston Garden at the time, and I, I got to spend a lot of time. They, it was really just a big scam to get free tickets to see, you know, all the local teams wow. up close. And I, I managed to be in the locker room at one point with all these guys out of uniform, and I didn't recognize them. <laughs> and I, I walked up to Ray Bork, who uh, who's one of the great ever defensemen, uh-huh. and he was standing there naked in front of me, and I said, Hi, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> Outside of his sweater, it was hard to tell. Oh, my goodness. Not a good moment. Yeah. To be a reporter on the beat, which I wasn't on really, but it was fun. Anyway, that's a little uh, digression. So Boston, Boston Phoenix for a while, and then about a year or so after college, I went to, or two years, I went to Washington, D.C., and I worked for the New Republic magazine. Mm-hmm. And that was a great time. I had, uh, if you're familiar with the magazine, it's, it's still um, it's every bit as good as it ever was. But at the time, the editor was just this wonderful person, brilliant, brilliant editor named Mike. Kinsley, mm-hmm. and he couldn't have been more encouraging and supportive, and he just he gave us incredible freedom to try things. I wrote comedy pieces, and he you know had me doing. Uh, I interviewed the Speaker of the House. It was all kinds wow. of fun stuff, and very heady for a kid that age. And, and to be in Washington, I was always very interested in politics. And suddenly, I ha- I could get my phone calls returned, and that was sort of interesting. Mm. But I really was just kind of a tourist in it all. Having only been there, I mean, only getting to be there really a, a year or so, I didn't get to fully steep myself in that world, which may be good. Mm-hmm. 
they say Washington is uh, Hollywood for ugly people. So I decided to go to the good-looking coast. Uh, so yeah. So tell me how tell me how that happened. So so what drove you to L.A. and and uh, what were your goals at that point? I was writing a lot of stuff at the New Republic that that edged toward creative writing. I mean, I I, I did do reporting pieces. I wrote editorials. You may remember uh, very long ago now, Ed Meese, the former Attorney General under Reagan. Mm-hmm. There was a whole campaign where people were putting up posters saying Meese is a pig. I don't know why I'm remembering this now, but I, I, I did write some editorial to give it some uh, concrete support. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, and I did all that kind of stuff, but the, the the humor pieces and the creative writing was really capturing my fancy, and I I just thought it might be kind of exciting, and I knew people from college who'd come out to L.A. and and gone into the writing business. A bunch of them had gone were on the Lampoon in college, and they wound up on The Simpsons and, and on some of the shows back then. Wow. So it seemed suddenly like something that one could do, but I wasn't prepared to do it without some sort of soft landing. So I applied to film school and uh, got into USC film school and came out here thinking I'd be a writer and director of sort of indie style movies mm-hmm. or or at least, uh, you know, maybe Hollywood movies, but things that I'd write myself. And I did a lot of, uh, in my first couple of years, made a lot of short movies and the kinds of things now people would would do as quick videos that you put on the net and stick on funny or die or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a lot of fun. It was, it was my, it was the sort of the bridge to the business for me to come out and, and spend a couple of years nestled right in the heart of the business in a very, as it turned out, commercially oriented film school. Mm-hmm. Very, very savvy place where they were always keeping an eye on how you could break into the business. And a lot of people out of there did. Mm-hmm. Now, now tell me, um, you you had a full scholarship awarded by U.S. Congress. Um, tell me about that. That's a I, did I put that in the resume? <laughs> it's a it's a sort of a pompous way of uh, saying it. Not that you said it pompously. I probably wrote it pompously. Uh-huh. No, it, it was something called the Jacob Javits Fellowship, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's still around. And it was a uh, something that the that's a. I guess you apply for, and it's is funded out of the out of the Congress in Washington. And they're Jacob Javits Fellows, and it, it was a it was a great, incredible windfall for me and and um, blessing because I I got to go through film school, which is extremely expensive. Oh yeah, I mean I I was actually accepted to uh, USC, um, and couldn't afford to go. <laughs> so oh, there you go. Wow. Yeah. So Jacob Javits, look for it. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're creating your own film school online here, which is uh, I'm really impressed. It's, well, thanks. It's actually uh, you learn almost more than you did back then just by uh, tuning in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Well, so uh, so you wrote a feature screenplay, and um, and then between that and your first gig on Partners, uh, between film school, I, at the end of film school, I was writing a feature, and I was I was working on my friends' films and. And I did a fair amount of journalism again because I, I needed, you know, to pay the bills and I was finished with school and I had more time. And I was a stringer for Newsweek and wrote stuff for Premier Magazine and some things for uh, Michael Kinsley's first internet adventure called Slate, which is still around and still great. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, so I did that for a while and gradually gravitated over to writing TV comedy with a friend of mine, an incredibly funny guy named Eric Previn. Mm-hmm. 
and he and I wrote a couple specs. We wrote a, a I guess the first one was a Frasier, and then uh, and then we wrote a Mad About You a spec, and then we wrote a Larry Sanders spec. I think at the time those were the some of the big shows to do. And and when I was coming up in the TV comedy world, it was a little bit more structured than it is now. Mm-hmm. And there was really more of a kind of a pecking order. You had to start by writing samples of shows that were on the air, and you would ideally get yourself a, a, an entry-level staff job. Obviously, there's still that sort of thing now, but mostly people write originals now mm-hmm. to break in. And back then, we wrote those. And we, we, you know, we, we got the hang of it, and we got our material out there. And Eric's sister... Anne Previn was a friend of mine from college, and we went to her uh, her band. She was in a she was in a band called Edna Swap, mm-hmm. and she wrote this. Do you know that song "Torn"? It became a big hit for uh, Natalie and Brulia. Oh, love that song! Yeah, great song. And Anne had written it, and you know, really, we were, we were uh, yeah, we were out uh, we were out at this show of hers. The band was playing it. They had a very different style. She played a sort of rockier, heavier version. And she mm-hmm. really, she was a great singer. Is a great singer. And we were, you know, meeting and hanging out with her afterwards. And she introduced us to a friend of hers who was an executive at Universal in television, Maria Grasso. Mm-hmm. Um, great executive. Still, uh, now I'm, I forget the name of the company she's at. She was, she was, she's been in a, a bunch of places over the years, uh, lifetime. And uh, I, I am forgetting exactly now where. But at any rate, Maria brought us in because we'd mentioned we had some TV writing and we wanted to break in. She had us send her something and we did. And this was before we really had an agent. Mm-hmm. She read and really liked it. And we kind of got in touch with an agent almost at the same time as uh, she was handing our material to Jeff Greenstein and Jeff Strauss, who were known as the Jeffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had come off of Dream On and Friends, and they were starting their first show and staffing it, the show Partners, which was Tate Donovan and John Cryer in a multicam show, kind of like, kind of like a friend's, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a, it was a very, very sweet two buddies who worked as architects and were juggling their friendship with one of them getting engaged. It was an incredible experience. I love that show. I love, mm-hmm. I love working with those guys. I worked again with Jeff Greenstein a few years later on Jake in Progress when he was on that show. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was an amazing first introduction really to all of what can happen in a writer's room. We had about 10 people in that room and was a no holds barred, loud, throw everything in and see what sort of flowed to the surface of the room. Some rooms are like that and some, some can be a lot more intimidating, but they, they really had a, a very inclusive, open, positive sort of attitude and that trickled down and it made everybody, everybody had a lot of fun, even though we had insanely long hours, I will say. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's typical of, of multi-camera in general, isn't it? It depends. It, it is typical of a brand new show which is sort of finding itself and, and figuring itself out. And sometimes you, you, you'll write a script and you'll go to table and everyone will hear the script and, you know, the whole second act won't work and you'll, you'll have to start all over. And that, that can take you into the night. And then you do it again the next night, you know. So we had, we had many a late night on that show. And they came out of, a, of Friends where uh, even after many years, Friends writers would be there till 2 and 3 in the morning every day. Mm-hmm. And they were notorious for that. But there are other multi-camera shows, and I've been on some and also have heard of certain shows that are just incredibly punctual and crisp and, and you know, run like a, like clockwork. That can happen. Mm-hmm. I, I think the, uh, the Frasier show, you know, those guys were out at six o'clock after having a nice glass of wine. Really? On a multi-cam? On a multi-cam. And they'd shoot the show in two hours. You know, the audience would come and, and be gone. It would just fly. Wow. 
Very cool. Now, so Partners only last one season, right? Alas, yeah. We did uh, 22 episodes, and it was uh, on it was on Fox on Monday nights, I think. Oh, boy. With a, paired with a show called Ned and Stacy. And at the time, Fox was really trying to... They still never quite cracked the live-action comedy on Fox. They do animation really well, but they... Over the years, they've done some incredibly great shows like Arrested Development. Oh, love it! And Bernie Bernie Mac, and there there are a bunch of shows that are among my favorite shows. But they seem to always get canceled pretty quickly. At the time, we were getting, I think, an eleven share. Oh my goodness! And uh, or was it maybe an eleven rating, fifteen share, something? I I I don't know how that even. I can't quite remember. But it was it was a number that they said you know was way below what they wanted. Wow. And I don't think they've ever gotten that number again until maybe American Idol. Wow. So it's just the way it goes. You know, the next season it went down and, and television audiences were shrinking and yeah. they had trouble getting it. So it was really unfortunate. I think that show could have had a life for a while. Yeah. Just in general, it seems like Fox is a little uh, quick on the trigger finger. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So anyway, so next was Boston Common. So So tell me about that one. Boston Common was a, a show built around a comedian named Anthony Clark from the South. It was kind of like a mid-season launch, so it had launched when I was on uh, Partners, and it did really, really well after Seinfeld on NBC. And then uh, we came on the next season, and we did a full season with that. And it was actually another show that was it did quite well, but it was not a standout hit and it was on what they, you know, they call it the bubble and it didn't quite have the numbers to stick around. The guys who created that show, Max Muchnick and Dave Cohan, that was their first show and they went on to do Will and Grace a couple of years later. Wow. Very, very funny guys. Also there, you know, it was also a fun room. Good experience. I enjoyed that a lot. I learned a lot from those guys. I mean, they, they were very complimentary talents. You know, they, they were funny and cerebral in kind of different ways. So it was interesting to watch. They had a hired chef who catered all the meals, so we'd never have to get up from the table. (laughs) (laughs) One of those things, it was a mixture of, you know, the the go-go 90s. I guess there was an internet bubble, as you might have heard. Uh, Uh, But there kind of was a comedy writing bubble at the same time in the mid to late 90s. There were maybe 30, 40 sitcoms on network at the time. Wow. every, Every network had three or four almost a night. And uh, that came crashing down in the early 2000s. But back then, the money was flowing all over the place for the people who ran the shows. And, you know, you, you got treated really well, and they had a, a, they actually catered the, the actual production. Wow. It's pretty funny. Very cool. We were a couple stages over from Seinfeld, which was is still one of my all-time favorite shows I used to sneak over to. Oh, neat. To watch them work in the middle of my day. Wow. And so, um, now that one... Uh, that was the last season. Well, yeah, it was. Uh, the, it had a season and a half. We were on the the second season, and then it it didn't get renewed. Mm-hmm. And then I, I was on a couple other shows. I just list them. I was on a couple other shows in half hour after that. Yeah, just just just. A, I mean, whatever stands out. Uh, anything interesting about uh, about the shows? Um, something's all right. Holding the baby. Uh yeah. I mean, the the amazing thing is on even on shows that weren't. And I thought something's all right was a, was a very good show. And again, kind of. Should have been renewed, you know, didn't, could have caught on more, but didn't just get the chance. Even on shows that weren't terrific, the writing staffs were really impressive. I mean, uh, the, the number of people whose careers went on to glory from some of those rooms mm-hmm. on shows you don't even know about or hear about much, like Holding the Baby, which was a, 
a remake of a British show. Everyone in that room was incredibly talented and funny. It was a little bit of a tough show to make work, but you know, I think you interviewed Jack Kenny a while back. He was on that. Oh yeah, with his partner at the time. Oh, he was. Yeah. Oh, cool. He was a writer on that show. Yeah. Oh, I love Jack Kenny. He's he's awesome. Yeah. He he's a terrific guy. Very very funny. He's up in Canada a lot now, uh, producing and writing uh, Warehouse Thirteen. Yeah, we 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 keep trying to set up dinner, and uh, he's always just flying in and out. <laughs> oh yeah, hard to pin down. Then I moved over to hour long. I actually uh, rewrote something that that caught the fancy of some hour long producers, and then they got it over to Ryan Murphy, and I knew him from way back, and he was starting his TV writing career, and he created the show Popular, mm-hmm. which was a you know hour long kind of dramedy. On, it was on the WB, I guess now you'd call it the CW, it sort of morphed into the CW. I'm not sure if you know the show, but it was basically glee without the music. No, oh, okay. It had the same kind of wild disjunction of tones, you know, uh, on the one hand, almost absurd comedy. And then at the same time, sort of a tear-jerking, touching high school, after-school special drama. Hmm. It, it was a nice blend, and there was a very talented cast, and Ryan was brand new to television. He'd never done a thing. Really? Before this show. This was the first piece he wrote for TV. I think he'd written a feature or two and it sold something, but he was incredibly impressive, I have to say. He'd been incredibly impressive way back at, at the Miami Herald when he was a, a reporter there, too. And he was a great guy to work for. We, we worked two seasons on that, and then, unfortunately, that show did not get renewed. But it was a lot of fun. Tremendous amount of fun. Very cool. And you won a Shine Award for one episode of that of that series? Yes. We did a show that was meant to bring up and spoof sex ed in high school. And Ryan had actually pitched the title Fire in the Hole, mm-hmm. which I think referred to some kind of sexually transmitted disease. And it, it turned into a musical. So that was the most likely, I think, of anything we'd done oh, yeah? that year. But it was a, it was the, the kids put on a very raunchy cabaret to explain, you know, the ins and outs, if you will, of, uh, of sexually transmitted disease <laughs> at an assembly in high school. And and we wrote the songs and stuff. I, I don't remember if, if we ended up writing the actual ones that aired, but we did write some songs about chlamydia and so on. It was pretty fun. Cool. And so then um, uh, Danny uh, came after that? Danny, yep. Another show, the same showrunners from Holding the Baby, a guy named Howard Morris, mm-hmm. hired us onto that. And that was a show with Daniel Stern. And that was your first uh, single camera comedy, right? Yes, although we were on the single camera, uh, you know, the, the hour-long popular was a single camera show. And at the time, there was a, there really was this kind of gulf between people who did multi-camera and, and single camera. There were very few single camera shows. And if you had done an hour-long with some comedy to it, you were qualified, but but there were people who had only done multi-camera mm-hmm. who wouldn't who wouldn't get uh, taken seriously on the single camera side. It, it's all I think that that distinction is broken down, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you know, you you were a special. It was almost like being a different position player in baseball. Yeah, you're either an infielder or you're an outfielder, and you you were supposed to know one kind of skill. And they're different. They are different kinds of shows, and the the production process can be very different. Multi-camera shows shoot on one night and they rehearse all week and you rewrite and rewrite and block and shoot and, and single camera shows shoot like films. So you write a script, you might table read it and rewrite it a little bit in the same way, but ultimately 
the actors go down and they shoot out a sequence, little scenes at a time, and they don't have an audience and they don't have the same kind of interaction with the writing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get changed usually as much in most cases. And uh, it's just a different kind of thing. And uh, now at this point, you were a consulting producer. So gradually you're you're moving up the producing ranks a little bit. And, and was that changing your responsibility in terms of set uh, being on the set and, and being involved in the editing? Or were you still primarily, primarily in the writing room? Yeah, it really depends on the show. Uh, some shows, if the showrunner, it depended on how, how actively he or she might be involved in the post-production process. And some places you would be a writer and you really only did the writing and then you went down to, to the stage and would, uh, be involved in blocking and shooting, but you'd be part of the team, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you, as you probably already, uh, I'm sure have talked about it in previous podcasts. Those titles are all related to writing in in in, uh, in the TV world, like uh, supervising, co-executive producer, consulting producer, co-producer. Mm -hmm. Those are all different levels of writer, at different um, degrees of experience, and so on, and pay. Yeah. So, uh, but sometimes you do uh, um, a lot of that, and sometimes you you don't do a lot of post-production. Popular, for instance, we were on the set the whole time our episode was shooting, and we'd be in post-production a fair amount and mm -hmm. look through the cuts and make our comments and present it to Ryan and Greer Shepard, who is the non one of the non-writing producers, who's a brilliant woman who does the closer and produced uh, Nip Tuck. We would go through that in great detail, but. On some of the multi-camera shows, I would say, except for the writing, which is a huge part of the job, obviously, we wouldn't really have that much to do with um, post-production and sometimes not that much even to do with the casting and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Really depended. It depended. When you move up the ranks somewhat, you're, you're expected to carry more weight in the writer's room and your, your drafts are supposed to be better and hopefully that, that works out. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, in some cases, I guess on, uh, let's say, Jake in Progress, the John Stamos show I, I worked on, I was very involved in casting. We we did, um, the writers of the episode at the table would go down to the casting sessions, and it, that was a very collegial group in that way. And speaking of casting, um, mm -hmm. sorry, that's a very loose segue, but uh, uh, Reba, um, from 2001 to 2003, um, you were a supervising producer on that, and, and now you were involved right from the beginning? We were involved the first season, actually not the very beginning, mm -hmm. but uh, midway through the first season we were added to that staff, and the woman who had created the show had kind of written a, a, an autobiographical piece about her family in Texas. Her name is Allison Gibson, mm -hmm. a very funny woman, and and she had hired a whole staff, and, and Reba McIntyre had gotten involved and became the star, and she's a very big star. Mm -hmm. She hadn't been a TV star yet, but but everyone was dying to get her on their network. And she really had a, an incredible rapport with an audience. And it's very funny, actually, mm -hmm. in addition to being quite a singer. So she sort of came in and, and became the brand and became the title of the show. And it, and it became more her show in the end. And after the first season, as these things sometimes happen, Allison was pushed out. Oh, wow. And a new set of producers came in to run the show, a very experienced showrunner named Kevin Abbott took over and unfortunately uh Reba cleaned house and almost everybody on the first season was removed. We had been there a little later so somehow we we weren't as tainted. Wow. With with originalitis or whatever. So we managed to survive and and another team managed to survive but I think out of like 20 writers there was only two entities that stuck around. 
Yeah. Now you say we. Yes, me and me and Eric, my uh, Eric Previn, my writing partner in those beginning years. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, was he your writing partner through from the very beginning through Reba. Yeah, we we wrote on um, Partners all the way up through Reba. All the way up through Reba. So in all those different shows, we were together on Eden uh, and wrote together. Hmm. And and so, um, tell me a little about a little bit about that. So you'd been writing with a with a writing partner, and obviously splitting the pay. And um, yes, <laughs> yeah, you split the pay, and we we had our own. We you know we're we're good friends to this day, and we were great friends before writing. And we were one of those writing teams that were kind of notorious for making a lot of noise behind closed doors. You'd hear us yelling at each other. And, oh, yeah. Um, uh, I always said, uh, you know, he was the stormy, noisy one, but I'm sure I drove him to it. And we, we had a lot of fun, but it was it was just sort of one of those things that finally fizzled out. But he, he's a brilliantly funny guy. And after we stopped writing together, he, he was also a producer and had been a line producer and sort of, you know, physical on set producer. He had gone off to, to do in the mid 2000s. He went off to, he worked for Sony International and did a bunch of productions of U.S. shows repurposed abroad. You know how they oh, okay. married, married with children in Ecuador. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Russian version of the nanny, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he would go abroad. And he was paid to consult on those shows and, and help them perfect their process or homogenize their product or whatever it was that we did in the States. He would have them uh, learn how to do, you know, put it all on the soundstage and roll your cameras from this part of the set to that part of the He He had a lot to teach. So he, he went off to do that. And I was still here and I was writing and I just, you know, figuring out what to do next, I ended up sitting down to write a pilot about the experience of trying to find a new writing partner or experience, you know, or, or, or just working on my own. Mm-hmm. And I called it Untitled Ari Posner Spec Script. Uh-huh. And it was all about, you know, breaking up with Eric and then fictionalized a whole scenario about trying to move on with my life. Wow. And that actually got me some attention and got me some other work. So that was a transitional period for me. And it's often hard because you get, you get defined as a partnership and in some bizarre way, people think, well, I know he can work when he works with that person, but how on earth can I tell if he can write on his own, you know? <laughs> and so for a while, it becomes a little harder to get the next job until you've sort of shown your independence and your your confidence on your own. And that helped me a lot mm-hmm. in, in making that next step. Now, and that wasn't your first pilot, and that wasn't your only pilot. Um Maybe you can talk a little bit about your pilot writing. Uh, you also wrote one called All About Steve, which I'm guessing has nothing to do with the feature? No, it has nothing to do with the feature. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, it was unfortunate when, for me anyway that that, that feature came out because I love that title. Mm-hmm. And that movie was not good. <laughs> uh, and it kind of swept the field for that one. I had done a pilot with Eric called Just Add Water, which was a multicam about his life. He had met his wife, and instantly they were pregnant and had a family before they'd even gotten to know each other, kind of. Mm-hmm. And then All About Steve was something I did for VH1 with this very funny actor named Joe May, who lives in England, but he's Canadian originally. And I think he's been on this show Episodes recently, mm-hmm. the uh, David Crane show. There were many of these at the time, I guess, kind of loosely reality show structured, but fictionalized stories about a celebrity and the people around that celebrity. And we were trying to cast a celebrity, and we never really quite did. But mm-hmm. it was about the assistant to a 
Madonna-like celebrity in the household in, in L.A. that sort of became her support structure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that was the, the pilot, and Joe and I worked on that, coming up with a character, working off a character that he had uh, in, come up with before to, to sort of flush that into a, into a whole show. And it was, it was uh, for VH1, kind of fun. Cool. And then should we go, because you did a few more pilots after that. I pitched pilots. I, I was working on stuff with Happy Madison, which is Adam Sandler's production company. Mm-hmm. Worked on a, a on a show. You know, there's so many moments in a TV writer's life where you're just that hair off of the timing is just a little right or wrong one way or the other. And I did a pilot with them and I pitched it at Sony. It was kind of about suburban crime. Mm-hmm. Somebody stumbling into a life of crime was about actually a guy who, who ends up being a sort of madam in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. By happenstance, he ends up becoming a sort of a pimp, really. Mm-hmm. And pitched it, you know, just a couple of weeks after Breaking Bad sold there. Oh, no. And uh, even though they were very different and the tone was just was lighter than Breaking Bad, it was just too similar for them. Anyway, so there, there are those experiences along the way. I worked with Adam McKay at Gary Sanchez Productions. Mm-hmm. We hatched an idea that I loved and didn't end up quite taking. I worked on a pitch with Sony and Original Films, which is Neil Moritz's company, a show about, uh, which was a very broad comedy, multi-camera, about life on a cruise ship, hot ship, it was called. Uh-huh. Oh, that that would have been neat. Yeah, that was kind of fun. Yeah, very cool. So in uh, in, in in between all that, you did... Jake in progress. I'm I'm, uh, betraying my Canadianism there. I think it's progress in in the States. By any measure, it was uh, not a hit. (laughs) However you pronounce it. Um, John John Stamos was the star. And it was actually a lot of fun. And it it looked fantastic. It was really a, a slick show. Great director. who Michael Spiller had done the pilot. And he, and I'm forgetting the name of the the producer, but both of them are on Modern Family. Hmm. It looked great. It had a great feel. It had a great cast. Wendy Malick was in it. But our it didn't quite click. It didn't quite work. And I think maybe the problem was John Stamos is just too damn handsome for anybody to uh, root for (laughs) as a guy who's lovelorn, you know. Mm -hmm. And the show was sort of about trying to find happiness with women and never quite succeeding. And you just don't, you don't see John Stamos having that problem. Yeah. (laughs) That might have been the disconnect. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move on to um, a little more recent uh, Mental on Fox. Yeah, that was a wild, very strange experience. I was working on a show. Well, Mental, not to be confused with the Mentalist, although mm. I'll tell you, we were confused with the Mentalist in some funny ways. But uh-huh. this was a show that Fox TV Studios, one of the sort of smaller, more aggressive um, entities within the bigger Fox TV production facility, I guess was making and they they've gone on to do white collar and burn notice i think might have been before that one but we did we did this show about a psychiatrist in la chris vance and annabella shiora were the stars mm-hmm. and we filmed it because fox tv studios was sort of trying to see whether they could make a production with a with a international partner we actually were teamed up with fox telecolumbia Interesting. And filmed that show in Bogota, Colombia. Really? It was set in L.A., though. And you'd think that that would make some sense if you don't know anything about South America, as I didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'd think, well, it's around the 
equator, it's going to be warm. I guess that'll be cool, right? But it turns out many of the big cities in South America around there are 9,000 feet above sea level. Yeah. So they're drizzly and, and green and rocky, and they don't look remotely like Los Angeles. So it was kind of, it was kind of strange. And we were across the street from a, a huge military garrison. Oh, my. There'd be helicopters taking off and guys with machine guns. And this being Bogota, it was past the worst of the uh, Pablo Escobar days. So it uh-huh. wasn't quite, you know, there weren't really as many kidnappings. It wasn't as big an industry <laughs> locally as it used to be. But it was still a pretty scary place. So they had us under uh-huh. under armed guard at all times and driven around in a car with a, often with a guy with a gun in the car, you know, just to make sure. That is crazy. Pretty funny. Trying to write dramedy in those circumstances. We actually wrote a lot of it here in L.A., the woman who created the show with her brother, Deborah Joy Levine, and her brother, uh, Dan Levine. <laughs> Same last name, different spelling and pronunciation. Interesting. They were based here, and at a certain point, it was a tiny staff. They just didn't want to go down there, and I ended up being the on-set writer-producer for a big chunk of that production. And that's not an easy thing. You know, it was we were a small, hardy band, but being trapped in a hotel was driving the actors insane. And they would they would come back and forth for long hour days, and then you know be stuck in their rooms. And everybody was getting a little stir crazy. So that was that was a pretty crazy event. But the really talented people. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, De- Deborah Joy uh, Levine, um, she was the creator of Lois and Clark, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And she ran a show called The Division. Mm-hmm. Very experienced, very professional. Hmm. Very very cool. And that ran on Fox after House for a summer, thirteen episodes. So it would be House and then it was about a psychiatrist in Los Angeles, kind of a maverick. Mm-hmm. Not exactly like House, but it had a similar setup. It was a, it revolved around a guy who was making waves in his hospital setting. Mm. And then after that came Call Me Fitz. Yeah, Call Me, Call Me Fitz, right? And now that's HBO Canada, um, but where, where is that written? Interestingly enough, it started in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Sherry Elwood, the creator of the show, was working out here. She had been on Defying Gravity on ABC, mm-hmm. and she was writing the pilot for a project, which at the time was called Meet Phil Fitz. Meet Phil Fitz. Meet Phil Fitz. And it was about her brother, I think, is a, is a car dealer or something. And she had, she had some great fun adventures, and she, she wrote the pilot and brought in a couple writers, and we sort of helped flesh out a few more episodes and, and a direction for the series. She had a maze attached. They had, they had developed it with her, Taser Lawrence and Mike Souther mm-hmm. at Amaze Productions. And at a certain point, they brought in E1 and decided to film it up in Canada. And she moved back to it. I, I guess she had been there as a young woman and still had a, maybe a, like a, a, a winter home in somewhere in Nova Scotia. So they decided to go to Nova Scotia for a whole bunch of different reasons, but that's where it ended up being filmed. Hmm. And we did a fair amount of our, we did some of the writing here in Los Angeles and then had a room in Toronto where we broke the entire first season and, and did the beginning, the first writing of scripts. And then in, sort of dispersed for a while, came back together in Nova Scotia, just a handful of us at the time, Sherry and, and Dennis Heaton. I don't know if you're, uh, inter- if you've interviewed him, brilliant, incredibly uh, skilled mm-hmm. writer, producer. And we were on uh, location there in Nova Scotia in a very small town called Wolfville. Mm-hmm. And in New Minus, they had found a, uh, which is right next door, they found a, a, an old abandoned Kia dealership that we turned into the Fitzpatrick Motors set. And we sort of shot 
as if we were making a little movie on location. Very cool. For a bunch of months. It was really great. It was, it was amazing. Well, that, that's, that show has a really nice look. Like it's, it's got a very, um, kind of real look to it. Yeah, it really does. Uh, all credit goes to Sherry. She, she really has a, she's a director as well as a writer and she really had a very defined idea in her head and managed to pull it off and on a budget too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really impressive. It doesn't quite look like, like anything else. Yeah. It, and it has that kind of low budge, you know, for lack of a better word, artistic kind of feel to it. It it seems more like an indie movie than a than a half hour comedy. Oh, it really does. I, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if if that's uh, one one factor in in the uh, Gemini nominations that it's got. I mean, it's it really stands out. Yeah, I think so too. It really does. It came down. It's it airs down here on Direct TV, mm-hmm. and it got an incredible rave in the New York Times. I don't know if you saw that. No, but that was a, a feather in everyone's cap at the time. But it hasn't it hasn't really made as much of a dent down here yet. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people I know in the business have not seen it or don't know it that well. So I'm hoping uh, hope people will start to catch on. Yeah, good show. Jason Priestley's great in it. Yeah, Ernie Grunwald's great. Tracy Dawson, who is a writer on the show, plays Jason Priestley's sister. Oh yeah, Megan Fitzpatrick, and she's a, she's an absolute scream. So you know, it's some really talented people. Yeah, very, very fun. I, I haven't actually seen the show, the show, but I saw the trailer, and it looks really good. Yeah, definitely worth seeing. Yeah. Um, and then uh, since then... After that, I, I in fact, I've had two writing experiences up in Canada in the last little while. Even though I grew up in Montreal, I'd never worked in the Canadian industry before Fitz. Mm-hmm. And I, I then went back for a chunk of... Uh, it was last year, I guess. I did some work on the show Less Than Kind mm-hmm. with Mark McKinney as showrunner. And also an amazing experience. I have to say, the two Canadian writing experiences I've had have both been total standouts. The quality of the writing and the, the amount of hard work that people put in was just incredible. Mm-hmm. And Mark McKinney, you know, from Kids in the Hall, he's just an amazing, amazing guy. He's yeah. an amazing, amazingly skilled storyteller. Well, and, and I, I have to say, uh, being in Canada, it's it's so nice to see... Um, like it used to be that Canadian shows stayed in Canada, and it's so nice to see shows coming across the border, like Flashpoint and Rookie Blue, and mm-hmm. uh, Call Me Fitz. Um, great examples of of shows that are they're crossing over and doing well in the states. Yeah, they're really it should it should be so much easier. You'd think with the internet it would just be possible, but there are all these barriers to it. I can't believe that people don't get to see Less Than Kind down here. Mm-hmm. A really, really good show. Actually. Mm-hmm. Really, I mean, uh, very tragically, the lead. Maury uh, Chaikin passed away. Oh, yeah. But um, I think it's persisting and, and doing another season since then. But he was a very vital part of it. It was really well done. Very, very sort of sweet and touching and funny all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And so uh, so bring me to the present. So you, you have been doing some teaching as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the last uh, couple of years, I've been writing pilots. I wrote, uh, I just finished a, a pilot that's in consideration over at the Disney Channel, a half-hour family comedy. Mm-hmm. And I've written uh, an hour-long dramedy for Happy Madison, again, and Sony that I'm in the process of, I'm really revising and going to send out hopefully in the next couple weeks as a um, finished script with the studio to the networks, you know, to the relevant networks. And that's a dramedy, a medical dramedy, which I probably won't go into too much more detail about just yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of fun with that, and and writing a movie with a friend of mine now, 
and I'm teaching at Cal State Fullerton some of the time, screenwriting class, and actually a TV writing uh, workshop. I did a, a, a comedy writing workshop where we will, in fact, in the, in the next time I teach that class, I will be recommending that they check out this site because it's, it's the kind of stuff that it's very useful and, and helpful. Very, very cool. I appreciate that. Well, well, we'll just be wrapping up uh, shortly. But um, since since you've done so many pilots uh, and you've obviously had some great success um, with them, uh, I I know that there's been a major transition in the industry in the last few years. Like even even five years ago, people would write specs to get a job, and so all the books talk about how to write specs and there's very little out there about how to write a pilot because typically in the industry it was only experienced people who wrote pilots well now yeah everybody wants a pilot wants original material and there's not as as much in the way of resources um so what what advice do you have in terms of a a, a beginning writer writing a pilot i would say that that in terms of breaking into the to the industry as a writer, you do need to write original material nowadays. It, it doesn't hurt you to write a sample of a show, and it's a good ex- it's good practice. It's good experience. People will look at those. If you write them really well, they may be the cherry on top that gets you the actual job. Mm-hmm. But they, they want to know that you can write an original piece. And on the plus side, those original pieces can can launch you from zero to sixty in a second. You know, there are, there are people who broke into the business off their first pilot, which got made. Wow. Um, that, that's been happening nowadays. And I would say the other thing that, that, that writers breaking in should do is write five-minute, three-minute, ten-minute movies and make them mm-hmm. and post them, you know, get them on YouTube. There are going to be more and more channels on YouTube coming up that will cater to breaking, vo- you know, new voices. Launch them on fa- uh, Funny or Die or, or other places that where you can share your stuff. I did a movie, uh, a sort of short slash... PSA on Funny or Die about a year ago. Mm-hmm. My kids are in public school here in Los Angeles, and there have been these terrible budget cutbacks, which have really mutilated some of the after-school programs. And we were trying to draw attention to that. Uh-huh. And so we drew on the, the parent population of the school and cast Brian Austin Green and Megan Fox, who are a couple Whoa. now married. Wow. Um, he had a, a son in the school and we got them to do this little movie with us. And we just wrote, you know, my friend John Koch and I wrote a little sort of comedy skit about Megan coming in and being mistaken for a substitute teacher and realizing just how underfunded her classroom was. Oh, wow. It, 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 we put it on Funny or Die. Very cool. And it's, a, it's you know, you've got a million plus, uh, I think probably in terms of pure eyeballs, more people saw that. Mostly because of Megan Fox, uh-huh. but still uh, saw that than many of the other things I've ever done. Wow! You can get you can get people's notice, and you can really make a, a splash by writing and then making your own thing. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely a, a path that I would still I would encourage people to go down mm-hmm. these days. But you you were asking about um, wh- what it means to write pilots in in this world. The the one thing that I would say about pilots is. You, ha- you have to write something original. It doesn't have to be a pilot. It can be a movie script. It can be a play. People are getting ca- uh, hired on shows off of original material. Okay, so so not just a pilot. Not just a pilot, even in TV. But pilots obviously make a good... They can double as uh, something that an agent can sell and, and package. and So they're more eager to get their hands on you if you've got one. But one of the interesting things is, as I've discovered over the years... Pilots are harder than they look. Mm-hmm. Uh, many a show, I think, 
finds itself on its feet after a few episodes, and the pilot doesn't turn out to be one of the better episodes. Uh-huh. It's challenging to get all of those characters established and up and running while also creating some diverting you know, introductory story and creating a, a template that, that is viable and can last for seasons and seasons of shows doesn't always work. It's not as easy to to do that sort of thing straight out straight out of the gate. Mm-hmm. In some ways, the old system where you'd learn not just the production tools to make television shows, but the storytelling skills and tools. You you build those as you went along. I, I think for most people, I mean, you know, myself included, you need to learn the ropes before you you can do something. There are other people who just feel like, hey, I'm going to start tomorrow. I'll write something great, new, and different. The guys who wrote uh, Eastbound and Down, for example, mm-hmm. they hadn't done television at all, and they just made this wild, crazy, different kind of show. Have you seen that one on HBO at all? No. The Dan- Danny McBride show. He's one of the writers. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 in some ways, that fits. We were we, that was one of our few touchstones. You know, it was a, it, it's a show that just doesn't look like a TV show and and doesn't unfold like it's going to go on for more than a season or two. And as it turns out, I think that one's only going to last three years. Mm-hmm. But those are shows that somebody just decided I'm going to make whatever I feel like and I don't care if it seems to have the legs of something in the last forever or whatnot. And, and, and it can work. Yeah. I think I just digressed for about 10 minutes there on something. I forget what you even asked. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Well, in, in, uh, in, um, I just actually finished reading, um, Bill Rabkin has a, a new ebook writing the pilot. Ah. Can you send me a link to that? I'd like to take a look at that. Yeah, it's it's on uh, on the Kindle four ninety nine, I think. Um, I, I'll uh, I'll email that to you after. Yeah. But uh, um, great, great ebook. The last chapter is very controversial because he actually advocates. He he basically says, as a, a beginning writer, you will never sell your pilot. It's just a writing sample, which is probably true. I mean, there's been a few cases, like mm-hmm. I think the event uh, came out recently was a was a first uh, script. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, even Chuck on on NBC, Chris Fedak. Yeah, think. yeah, that was an early, that was the first thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, but for the most part, uh, generally a beginning writer probably won't sell their their pilot. And but what Bill Rapkin yeah, says true. is, he says go out and shoot it. You know, you got these DSLR cameras now, and and actually shoot a pilot. Um, we uh, we put up that topic. We have a, a Sunday night chat group. A lot of TV writers uh, join in, and um. And everybody thought that was a bad idea. Um, they hmm. said, uh, do a short film instead or, you know, um, uh, uh, webisodes or that kind of thing, but that there wasn't much point in shooting a pilot. Oh, uh, I see. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think uh, it's a matter of the labor intensity of doing 30 minutes as opposed to 10 minutes and whether you really will be able to sell a 30-minute pilot that will then air or not. As a sample of your work, you can probably get the same bang for 10 minutes mm-hmm. of good writing and production and, and making that a short or a webisode and really letting people know what you can do. You know, you don't necessarily have to make a 30-minute piece in order to get that across. But if you've written a half-hour pilot and you're trying to get people to notice it, you could shoot a part of it or you could you could make the whole thing. And I, I don't see – it's. I think it can help you and it can also be um, those kind of things – those kind of things really do – cut through these days. I mean, there are TV festivals that didn't used to exist mm-hmm. where people can, you know, get noticed. There are um, contests now that didn't used to exist. 
there are places that online where you can have pilots air. You used to, you know, even the even the big network pilots they'd spend millions of dollars on would be buried uh, up until a few years ago, and no one would ever see them. Now, something like Ben Stiller's pilot Heat, Vision, and Jack is a cult classic that gets seen all over the web in different places. And it, it's it's gotten eyeballs and it's helped launch careers. Mm-hmm. So I I think I don't think anything is a mistake if that's where your passion is taking you. I think if you've written a half hour pilot and you feel that that's the the right amount of time for the idea to develop and and to have its proper impact, I don't think it's a mistake to to uh, to shoot that thing. And you can also do it for cheaper than ever and faster than ever. I'll give you an example. And this didn't have a happy ending, but <laughs> a very good writer that I work with is a guy named Bob Cushell. Mm-hmm. And Bob wrote on Simpsons and Th- Third Rock from the Sun, a bunch of shows over the years. And and he's a very funny guy. And during the writer's strike a few years back, and I'm I'm actually speaking to you from inside the writer's guild, so I don't think I'm mm-hmm. I don't think I'm saying anything that uh, will get anybody in trouble, but if I do, I may have to touch base back with you. But at any rate, Bob we were picketing and we were marching and we were trying to, to, you know, make our, our voices heard. And Bob did these little short movies starring himself about trying to, I I forget if they were about the strike or or if they were kind of like just funny movies that he aired at the time, but he had a lot of writing energy that he was trying to get out, you know, kind of get out of his system. And he started them and they were a lot of fun. So he decided to do a little talk show. In fact, I remember when he told me the idea, when we were literally in, in line, in front of CBS Radford uh, on strike, he had this idea. What if I did a talk show that was an entire talk show in five minutes? Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, we started throwing around things, and I, I came up with a couple little bits. But he, he had this whole vision of it taking place out of his garage. He uh-huh. was shooting at it, I think, at his brother-in-law. And it was a it was a talk show where he came out and, and told one joke that was his monologue, and then he you know did a bit, and then he went to the desk, and then he had guests who were his friends in show business, some of whom were really good and and talented, and and it looked just like a talk show. He had John Stamos, he had Christina Applegate, uh, I forget who else was on, but but there were some really amazing talented people, and they do this almost surreal fast interview uh-huh. <laughs> the whole thing would wrap up in five minutes and one of the jokes was he had a giant band in the corner of the garage near the weed whacker you know yeah i, I actually i actually saw that show oh okay so it was called anytime with bob cushell yeah entirely entirely by himself to start with and then he got some money from i guess crackle or sony online or something mm-hmm. and you know he was getting the actor's bug he wrote a pilot and he and his brother-in-law got a couple people to act in it. I don't think they, they had to pay anybody. So that was good. And he starred in it and he filmed the whole thing mm-hmm. on DV cameras and, you know, HD cameras. I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was brilliant and really funny. And, uh, he didn't manage to sell it, but you know, it was the kind of thing that, that didn't, it certainly didn't hurt to go to the networks and say, look, here I am starring in a, in my own half hour. And he certainly works. Uh, he's, he sells pilots every couple months practically. And, I think he's on another show now. So long story short, people do it. Even very established writers are going to do that. It does give you a shortcut to showing people what you can do with an idea. Sometimes if the idea is controversial or different, or if you want to star in it yourself, you know, you need to do that kind of thing and it can uh, change your life. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the tools are definitely there. I mean, I, these new um, DSLR cameras uh, I just heard uh, recently, uh, I don't know how I missed it, but 
um, there was a, a DSLR shot feature that uh, was sold for $4 million to Paramount. Really? Wow. Yeah, it was shot like literally with a $2,000 um, camera you can walk into Circuit City and buy. What movie was that? Uh, it was called Light Crazy. Light Crazy. Wow. Yeah, it won, it won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize and uh, sold to Paramount for $4 million. Yeah, the, the DIY phenomenon is definitely coming to television. Mm-hmm. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Those guys wrote that script, and they were kicking around as actors, but they pretty much wrote themselves into comedy careers. Yeah. And they and they wrote, created, and starred in it. The woman who did, what was that show with Judy Greer, Misguided? Mm. Caroline Williams was the writer. Mm-hmm. I, think she, I think she had maybe spent a half a season on The Office. She wrote this pilot and was on the air. Wow. So it, it happens. Yeah. It definitely, it, it's much easier to get very far very quickly than it was when I started out. On the other hand, there's there's a lot less money for writers and the staffs are a lot smaller and, uh, you know, there are fewer hits on network television, uh, at least in the comedy side, mm-hmm. um, than there were when I was coming up. Yeah. Far fewer. But the, the take-home definitely is that uh, whatever original idea you have, um, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a pilot. Um, it could be short, it could be long, but just something to showcase your originality is the key. Yeah, I'll give you one more example. The writer I mentioned earlier, Dennis Heaton, mm-hmm. has written a whole bunch of things. He, he writes uh, a lot of Canadian television shows out of Vancouver originally. I think he's uh, now maybe the co-EP on mm-hmm. Fitz and uh, a, a brilliant guy. And he wrote a, he wrote a uh, web series about, I think it was called Satan. Oh, wait, i got to look it up. But he, he wrote and I think maybe even directed a whole bunch of five, ten-minute long webisodes. And it, they were up at different awards. Uh, they went to different festivals, and it was a it was a great calling card for him. My pal Satan, it was called. My pal my, Satan. My pal Satan. Yeah. <laughs> if you look up my pal Satan, you'll see. And those were those were you know he probably did six or ten episodes, something like that. Mm-hmm. They were pretty fun, you know. And he and it was very seat of the pants and and low budget, and he did it himself with a few people and got a lot of notice, got nominations and all that sort of thing. Well, and and the bottom line with all that stuff is it's just fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I was in film school and we just, we got the equipment, we went out and we just had fun shooting. Like, <laughs> I wish those days could come again. Where did you end up going to film school? Uh, I went to film school here in Toronto uh, for my undergrad. And mm-hmm. then uh, I just didn't end up going uh, to master's. It's fun. Yeah. Film school is, it, it seems like everything's film school now because you can, you can kind of do what you did in film school on your own in a way now that, mm. that you couldn't back then. Yeah. Cool. Well, we have gone way long here. I'm um, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's uh, no, but it's it's been great. Uh, honestly, uh, um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to share about uh, all the the points in your career and and certainly the the discussion about pilots. I think for for people breaking in, they just eat it up. Uh, anything that they can learn about about the pilot process um, and how to end and how to attack just original material in general, that'll help them uh, break in is very, very helpful. Well, I'm so so glad to have had a chance to talk to you. Great. Well, uh, best of luck to you, and, and thanks again, and I'll, I'll shoot you an email with uh, that info about that ebook, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll keep in touch. Great. I, pre- I look forward. Great. Thanks so much, Ari. Take care, Gray. Okay. Bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com. 
the leading source for scriptwriting information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Scriptwriting Software, the entertainment industry standard for scriptwriting worldwide. <laughs>